0: The funeral procession was large, but not necessarily grand. Close family was present, with one or two friends and a religious officiant. Followers filled up the rest of the entourage, trailing behind those most intimately connected with the deceased. As for the corpse, it was dressed up in the finest clothes, and wrapped in a large red wool blanket. A gift to, and a favorite of, the dearly departed. The body was then positioned on what had been their favorite horse in life, which was led deep into the mountains to a spot only described as a lonely place among the rocks and canyons. There, the horse was killed and thrown into a deep fissure in the rocks. The same fate awaited the now-deceased owner's dog. His weaponry was next, followed finally by his body, which was carefully lowered using ropes into this random chasm in the earth. Once he had been placed into this makeshift tomb, those in the procession began stripping off almost all of their clothing. The discarded apparel was then gathered up and ceremonially burned at the graveside. And with this now done, the group then turned and headed back down out of the mountains. To this day, the final resting place of Cochise, the great and terrible chief of the Chaconan Apache people, is still unknown his body lying somewhere in an unmarked, lonesome fissure deep in the Dragoon Mountains. Tom Jeffords, embattled Indian agent and the late Cochise's good friend, was the only white eyes at the burial ceremony in early June 1874, and the exact location is something he took with him to his own grave. Cochise died on the reservation he had been able to exact from Howard, fully satisfied that he had finally made a lasting peace. If he had lived just a bit longer, though, he would have seen how tentative that piece, and indeed his reservation, actually was. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ The History of Arizona. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we talked about Crook's brutal campaign of the winter of 1872-73, which exhausted and then broke the fighting spirit of most of the Apache and Yavapai living in Arizona. Beaten, starving, and exposed to the elements, the bands that had once controlled a 200-mile swath known as the Apacheria submitted themselves to the army forts and small reservations where the Americans could keep an eye on them. We're going to spend most of today talking about those reservations and why exactly they did nothing to help the situation. The best summary I can find comes from state historian Thomas Sheridan, who said, quote, Life in captivity often became a slow death itself. Early reservations in Arizona were sullen, miserable places. Soldiers herded Indians from many different bands and tribes together like cattle. Corrupt Indian agents cheated them out of their rations. Honest but overzealous ones tried to turn hunters, gatherers, and raiders into Yeoman farmers. Worst of all, people who had never lived sedentary lives before suddenly found themselves forced to occupy one place year-round. Disease thrived in the cramped, dirty quarters, and epidemics spread across the reservations, killing hundreds. End quote. Not exactly glowing praise, is it? So what I want to do today is take a look at three reservations in particular, Camp Verde, San Carlos, and the Chiricahua Reservation, to show how things steadily degraded. So let's start with Camp Verde. At first, from the American perspective at least, things seem to have been going great. Lieutenant John Burke Crook's aide and biographer, writes that the general's guiding principle was that the Apache needed a paradigm shift. To Crook, the Apache didn't raid because that's what they've always done, but rather because that's what their economy and social structure had been built around. Put simply, stealing and raiding is how an Apache got rich and famous in their culture. So Crook's solution was to give them another way of getting rich and famous without the raiding and the killing. No one, he reasoned, is going to change their whole life if they didn't have a powerful incentive to do so. And his solution was a quintessentially American one. Let's teach them to grow crops and sell them for cash. Basically, capitalism for the win. Those in charge of the reservation picked up this baton and ran with it. Within weeks, a concerted effort had produced a canal that was watering nearly 60 acres of fields, planted with melons and other vegetables. A great water well had been built and things were looking up for this fledgling farming settlement. As you might expect, though, this is the point that the rug was pulled out from under everyone's feet. See, things at Camp Verde were not the bucolic ideal that would have made Thomas Jefferson proud. For one thing, Crook had ordered every native on the reservation to be given a number stamped on a tag, with the tag itself being in different shapes to distinguish someone's particular band. If an Apache was found off a reservation, they were to produce their tag, plus a written pass with their tag number. For obvious reasons, the Apaches hated this dehumanizing system, and these tags were often used as currency in underground gambling circles. Another wild card was Delche, or Red Ant, the Yavapai leader we talked about last week, who had once been the symbol of resistance. Though he had run up the white flag and surrendered to the Americans, he remained an agitator on the reservation. The military authority at Camp Verde reported the civilian administrators were afraid of Delche and constantly tried to placate him. So the lieutenant asked for permission to arrest the Ornery chief just to keep the peace something that was granted on the condition that it'd be done quietly so as not to cause a riot. Unfortunately, Del Shea actually had an inside man in Camp Verde who relayed all of this to him. So when he was called in for what was ostensibly a routine census count, his men came prepared. The lieutenant tried to arrest him, and all of Del Shea's men pulled rifles. They probably would have killed the poor lieutenant except he had also thought ahead and had well-armed scouts handy to make the arrest. A standoff ensued before Del Shea and his men up and bolted. In the aftermath, Crook sent out Captain George Randall, one of his favorite subordinates who had originally brought Del Shea in. Crook's orders were simple. Randall was to find the chief and bring in his head. He also posted Del name along with several other prominent troublemakers who now had bounties on their scalps. And for the record, those orders were not in any way metaphorical. By the summer of 1874, recruited Apache scouts brought in a scalp they claimed was Del identified by a pearl shirt button that was dangling from an earlobe. Now, the darkly comical aside to this is months later, the agent down in San Carlos would push for payment to one of his charges, who also had purportedly brought in Del Shea's head. The whole head, mind you, not just the scalp. As author and historian Paul Andrew Hutton relays, Crook didn't seem too perturbed about the dueling claims. When I visited the Verde Reservation, they would convince me that they had brought in his head the general would write with some amusement. And when I went to San Carlos, they would convince me that they had brought in his head. Being satisfied that both parties were earnest in their beliefs, and the bringing of an extra head was not amiss, miss, I paid both parties. The thing that really sunk the Camp Verde Reservation was the third factor working against it. That same American capitalism that Crook was promoting. Burke and others describe how crooks offered to pay cash for what the Apaches were growing rubbed contractors and other merchants the wrong way. After all, the army was supposed to be paying cash for what they were growing. Army officers at the time placed most of the blame on the so-called Indian Ring of Tucson merchants who were exerting a ton of political pressure. I will add an asterisk to this, though, as 19th century politicians and army officers always loved to blame all their problems on rings or secret cabals of high and powerful people who were pulling the strings elsewhere. But there is no doubt that there were powerful voices in Tucson, voices that just so happened to have army contracts to supply the reservations, that were also against Crook's idyllic notion of the Apache getting rich by selling crops. Okay, let's set aside those issues for a moment and swing over to San Carlos to discover a whole different set of issues. As I mentioned back in episode 64, San Carlos had been set up by General Howard in 1872 as sort of a subset of the Fort Apache Reservation in the White Mountains. This reservation encompassed a wide swath of land, including the White Mountains, Gila Mountains, Salt River Canyon, and it straddled the Gila River through southeastern Arizona. Yet, in a very unfortunate move, the army decided to establish the reservation's headquarters at where San Carlos Creek flows into the Gila River, which was one of the lowest, hottest, and bleakest places in the entire reservation. Sheridan says the decision to fix the headquarters there was twofold. First, because it was so open and flat that the army could easily keep an eye on the Apache living there. And secondly, it was close to Tucson, and yep, the powerful merchants who lived there. Since being founded, San Carlos had seen pretty much nothing but upheaval. Eskimizin and his Aravipa Apache, along with the Penal Apache bands, had lived there since February 1873, as agreed to with Howard. Hutton says that the first interim agent was someone who, in the fine tradition of Indian agents before him, quote, had practiced chicanery for so long that to him fraud was the normal way to conduct business. End quote. Having gotten a taste of what he could skim off the top, this agent also interfered with Apache internal affairs in order to secure the permanent position for himself. But when a new agent was finally assigned, he arrived only to find that his predecessor had managed to turn half of his new charges against him, and some were even planning his murder. This agent, trying to show a brave face, dismissed offers of army reinforcements, though eventually a lieutenant and a small detachment were at the reservation to provide nominal security. Hutton provides a detail that Eskimizon, sensing the tension building at the reservation headquarters, prudently took his people and decamped for some nearby hills. On May 27, 1873, Apache gathered around the storehouse at the reservation headquarters to receive their standard rations. But rumors had been flying around about threats on the Indian agent's life, so tensions were at a fever pitch. At one point, the unfortunate lieutenant who had stayed to protect the Indian agent, one Jacob Almi, came to the building to search for an Apache warrior who had made some very vocal threats. And this is the moment that a gunshot rung out, and the lieutenant was seen grasping his bloody side. Another bullet struck him in the head, and he was down for good. The soldiers, who had just watched their leader be murdered in front of them, fired into the crowd of Apache, which caused only more panic. In the aftermath, the Indian agent decided that he was definitely not being paid enough for this and quickly resigned his post. San Carlos seemed to be spinning out of control, and when he learned of the disastrous situation, Crook immediately tasked Captain Randall and others to hunt down the Apache responsible. Once again, the orders were clear. He wanted literal heads to roll. During the spring and summer of 1874, as the hunt for Del Shea was on, Randall and his men, including Mickey Free, by the way, found many of the offending warriors. Their heads soon decorated the parade ground of the military camp at San Carlos. Eskimizin, fearing that his head might be next, came down from the mountains. Because of the death of Lieutenant Almy and the abrupt resignation of the Indian agent, the Indian Bureau back in Washington seriously considered closing San Carlos altogether and moving all the Apache up to Fort Apache in the White Mountains. This plan was scrapped because the agent up at Fort Apache had more than he could deal with already. I will point out that there is some historical irony here, as Fort Apache might have proven to be a better place in the long run than San Carlos. For the next 18 months, the reservation went through five different agents, and soon it became difficult to find anyone willing to serve there at all. I'm going to talk about who the government finally settled on next week, as he will turn out to be an inspired choice with enough zeal and willpower to go head-to-head with the Apache, the army, and the so-called Indian ring. But for now, let's turn to our last major problematic area, the Chiricahua Reservation under the leadership of Jeffords and Cochise. As I mentioned last week, Crook was not happy with the peace terms worked out by Howard, but there was nothing he could do about it. Except, there was one little issue that he hoped to exploit to his advantage. Like i mentioned a couple times now, the main sticking point of the Howard-Cochise Treaty was the subject of Mexico. For the first several months following the establishment of the reservation in the fall of 1872 there were numerous raids into Sonora, mostly led by younger warriors and some of the more, shall we say, volatile members of the Nedni Band, like Ja and someone you may have heard of, Geronimo. The remaining Nednes will continue to be a source of trouble for years, and it's possible the only reason they settled on the Chiricahua Reservation in the first place is so they would have a sanctuary after pilfering down south. Cochise evidently didn't consider this raiding important or that it would have any effect on his treaty, so he didn't try to halt it at all. And it's also possible that he invited the Nedneys to live on the reservation so they would raid in Mexico instead of Arizona. As you can imagine, Sonora didn't really take this lying down. Diplomatic complaints began before 1872 was over. The main newspaper of the state of Sonora began to pump out articles and editorials about how the Howard-Cochise Treaty not only granted permission for the Apache to keep up their raiding, but that the general had also supplied horses, saddles, and guns for them. Governor Pesquera of Sonora, yep, he's still around, sent a complaint to Governor Safford, alleging 20 different raids between October 1872 and March 1873. All of this made Crook smile just a little bit. Not because of the destruction and loss of property, but because it meant he had been right about Cochise all along, and that he could goad the old chief into making a wrong step. Fed up with Howard, his treaty, and Cochise, Crook devised a plan to do just that. He issued General Order 10, which called for a daily roll call of all Indians on all reservations. Crook hoped that this was onerous enough to drive the Indians into revolt. In fact, at the same time, he told Governor Pesquera on January 9th, 1873, that he was ready to move in if the Apache so much as twitched, and that the governor should feel free to amass troops at the border, you know, just in case. But because the Chiricahuas were not under army supervision, that had been part of Howard's treaty, Crook sent a small delegation, including the ubiquitous John Burke, to meet with the chief just to find out how he understood the treaty was supposed to go. This delegation met with the old chief and had a short interview, where Cochise tried to sidestep the issue of Mexico, but admitted that many in his band had a deeply ingrained hatred of the Mexicans, and some, you know, those incorrigible youth, may have raided here and there, but he certainly hadn't sent them. When Crook heard about this interview, he grit his teeth. Cochise obviously thought he hadn't violated anything, and since nothing in the treaty was actually written down, which was standard practice at the time, by the way, he couldn't nail Cochise for violating this or that article or even on some sort of technicality. Instead, he had to cancel his idea of stirring up Cochise into making the first move, and he wrote sheepishly to Pescuera that, uh, yeah, you can have your troops stand down because the plan ain't happening. As one little historical tidbit, during the interview, Burke noticed some marks on Cuchiz's hands. Apparently, the chief's youngest wife, in a fit of jealousy over the older wives, had actually bitten him on his hands. Now that's gutsy. But back to our main story. The issue of Apache raiding is not going to go away, and what makes matters worse is that Jeffords clearly was biased against Mexicans in favor of the Apache viewpoint, and just didn't care if they were raided. He said as much to a local newspaper in the kind of media slip that public officials are always having to back down from. Things got so bad that Mexican officials actually went to see Cochise themselves. They were received courteously enough by Cochise, and were fed the same line, that the chief himself had not done any raiding, but some younger folks, those darn kids again, may have occasionally gone south of the border. These envoys also reported that the Nedneys in particular flagrantly displayed their hatred for Mexicans and were brazen about leaving out items stolen during their excursions into Sonora. All through the first half of 1873, the situation got more and more tense. The Mexican press was still having a field day. Apache, fleeing from the Tularosa Reservation in New Mexico, started hiding out in the Chiricahua Reservation while raiding in Mexico and New Mexico. And all the while, Crook was still circling. And adding on to everything is the fact that Jeffords was being investigated for any role he might have played as the official Indian agent. While Jeffords and the reservation were defended by Howard, Crook relished being able to vent some of his frustration and use the opportunity to attack everything about Howard's treaty and Cochise and the reservation in general. Jeffords would be able to survive through this investigation, for now and it was determined that officially Cochise had kept up his end of the treaty, despite all of Crook's objections. Finally, though, all this pressure made both Jeffords and Cochise realize that if they wanted to keep the Chiricahua Reservation intact, they had to step in. So, starting in the late summer of 1873, Cochise began using what influence he could to stop his people from going down into Mexico. He began returning stolen animals, and in November of that year, he called a council of all the leaders under him to tell them definitively that raiding must stop. He also began talking about removing some of the other bands that had fled Tularosa and found sanctuary on his reservation. The decision came none too soon. Leaders in Washington, fed up with the constant complaints, were on the verge of handing the reservation over to Crook, Unless, of course, the reading was to subside. Which it did, and suddenly, problem solved. Still though, Jeffords was fighting a war on all sides at this point, and would soon turn in his resignation. He had not had an easy go of it as Indian agent, facing the uphill battle of getting the necessary rations that were promised to the Apache if they had settled down. Now... There were problems up and down the supply chain and ultimately budget issues at the top level. But Jeffords, like all the agents before him, began to learn the headache of promising a whole people champagne when all you have is a beer budget. And cheap domestic beer at that. Cochise's advanced age, failing health, and trust in both Jeffords and Howard kept him and his people from taking any drastic actions, So the reservation kept moving forward for now. And as we'll see, it would not be the Chaconans who gave up on the reservation first. I will note here that it wasn't like the reservation was some horrible failure. Raiding in southern Arizona did stop, and several people had to admit that Howard's treaty worked. One settler along Senoida Creek wrote Howard to personally thank him for making peace. This man noted that he had experienced several Apache raids and had lost 12 men on his ranch, but, quote, Everything has been going along very nicely. Not one Indian sign has been seen in these parts since peace was made with Cochise. End quote. Sidney DeLong, a Tucson resident who was actually one of the six Americans to participate in the Camp Grant Massacre, would also write, quote, "'Thus far, no cause for complaint has arisen, and you are entitled to the thanks of this people.'" End quote. And no less than James Bullard, who you might recall from episode 65, Howard had to talk down from shooting his Apache guides outside Silver City, New Mexico, and who had called the effort a quote, "'Damnable Peace Policy,' would later admit that he had been wrong and that Howard's task had been a success." So, for now, the reservation went on. On March 27, 1873, Cochise, accompanied by his family and about 20 warriors, rode into Fort Bowie. This was his first peaceful visit to Apache Pass since the Bascom affair. He greeted the officers, assured everyone that he was delighted with the peace, had lunch at the local general store, and then rode away in the mid-afternoon. This became the first of several visits Cochise would make to the post. The clerk of the store remembers that the great old chief would occasionally bring in goods, such as deerskins, but was really coming in to keep stressing that he was okay with the treaty and to have a few drinks with the officers. He always left before nightfall because he set strict rules for his people that they could not stay at the fort past sundown. For the man who had spent more than a decade fighting white eyes over that very spot of land, these peaceful sojourns were nothing short of remarkable. But we do have to remember that we are dealing with a much older, much more lean Cochise now than when he was introduced back in episode 34. It was obvious to everyone that he was in poor health, An official from New Mexico meeting with him in May 1874 noted that within an hour, Cochise became very exhausted. A few days later, he met with Cochise again, and in his opinion, the old chief was failing rapidly. Cochise was known to eat very little, either due to a stomach illness or an old wound, something that was aggravated by his habit of drinking copious amounts of tiswin, a habit, I should add, that became more pronounced once he agreed to the peace treaty. The local newspapers began to report regularly on his condition, with most agreeing that the old boogeyman of southern Arizona was not long for this world. On June 7, 1874, Jeffords sat down with his old friend for the last time. Cochise, who had been going in and out of comas for the past few weeks, asked, Do you think you will ever see me alive again? With a brutal honesty that he knew would please Cochise, Jeffords replied, No, I do not think I will. I think that by tomorrow night, you will be dead. To this, Cochise agreed. Yes, I think so too, about ten o'clock tomorrow morning. Then he asked a question that surprised his old friend. Do you think we will ever meet again? I don't know, said Jeffords. What is your opinion about it? I have been thinking a good deal about it while I have been sick here, and "'I believe we will. Good friends will meet again. Up there,' the great chief said while pointing at the sky. The next day, June 8th, he was gone. He was prepared for burial, probably by his wife Dostese, the daughter of Mangus Coloradas, which included bathing his body, combing his hair, and dressing him in his best clothes.' Then his body and possessions were taken to that lonely crag in the dragoons, where he now rests. Cochise has been part of our narrative for so long now that it's hard to say a few final words about him. Edwin R. Sweeney, his biographer, calls him one of the greatest Apache leaders of the 19th century. For 12 long years, he successfully eluded troops from four states within two different countries, and fought back against Mexicans and Americans alike. For many a white settler, he was Cochise the Great and Terrible, the scourge of southern Arizona, a boogeyman whose name struck fear in the hearts of travelers. For his people, he was a great war leader, a symbol of resistance to the encroachment of the White Eyes. Sweeney says it's ironic, then, that the man who could always be found leading his men into battle would die a natural death on a reservation he helped create. Like everyone in our story, he wasn't a perfect man. He was hot-tempered, violent, vengeful, and had a penchant for drinking. But he also was a powerful leader, an astute student of war and politics, could be a fast and true friend, and was more than a match for anyone sent out against him. So in the end, I think the best thing I can say about him is that he is a fitting eponym for Cochise County, the only county in the entire country named for an individual Amerindian. That is high praise indeed. But now he's gone, and the story, I'm afraid, must move on. So join me next week as we see the continual deterioration of the reservations in Arizona, And the government goes back to making bad decision after bad decision about what to do with the Apache. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.